I'm sure we have all been deeply saddened and troubled by the scenes that we're seeing coming from Ukraine, especially for those of us who maybe don't watch or haven't watched programs about other parts of the world. They used programs and whatever about Syria and the terrible things that went on there. I have to say the things that we in the West did in Iraq and in Afghanistan, we are not without responsibility or guilt either. But nonetheless, to see it happen in a European country and to see people just like us having to flee, women and children and wee ones and men, the young men having to go and fight. And, and I'd be thankful I was actually over 60 because at least I'd be allowed to go away. But many of us would have still to go and fight. I mean, well, there you are. I don't think your bad hip would call you out and break Kenny. You would still need to go. You would all need to do something. But that mobilization... And that crisis and then the scenes of people lying dead in the streets, that surely has troubled our hearts. I was reading an article just not that long ago, and since this time has come, and it was reflecting on the church in Russia. And of course, the challenge some of you may have heard that the World Council of Churches and has sought to put out of the World Council of Churches the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, because of the way in which large numbers of it, especially the establishment, especially the hierarchy, especially the patriarch, Kirill, who's based in Moscow, the way that they have not just cozied up to the state over a long number of years, but the way in which they have sung the state's song, particularly about the war in Ukraine, and the way they have ingratiated themselves into President Putin and his things. And the challenge has been that the church, the Russian Orthodox Church, I say the majority of it, not all, not all the priests follow that line, and we know that, and they've stood out. The church in Ukraine split away large parts of it from the Russian Orthodox Church because of that. But nonetheless, the way that the church as an institution has sought to be one of the pillars, has put it beyond the pale. And therefore, moves have been taken to have it expelled from the World Council of Churches. But I'm sad to say that the, the evangelical side of the church in Russia, although they haven't sought to ingratiate themselves with the civic authorities and powers, perhaps in the same way, certainly not in the same way, nonetheless have largely been silent. Again, individual pastors and ministers and and members have said their bit, we know that, but largely, partly because they have a different view of the state. The state is almost irrelevant. They have been largely influenced by churches, I have to say, from the United States, particularly independent churches, churches that would not want to see that the state really has much role to play, churches which rightly do emphasize personal salvation and the importance of reaching people, the good news of Christ, especially the drug addicts, the homeless, the poor, the needy. But having done all of that, they have also failed their calling, a calling which we in the West have also failed, where they have refused or been unwilling to speak truth into power. Unlike the church in China, which has had an influence in the Communist Party, that's one of the reasons why the Chinese government is so increasingly anti-church, because they're actually members of the Communist Party now, lower levels, but nonetheless members of the Communist Party who have been one for Christ, and that really is... Unlike that in China, that's not sadly been the case in Russia amongst those in positions of power. And so we need to pray for the church of all types, particularly the church that would theologically identify with us. We need to pray for pastors and church leaders, for organizations who work in that environment. And we know through Ian and other folks' connections that we have that they would be able to stand. It's easy for me in this pulpit to say that 
but that we'd be able to stand for truth and to speak that truth into power. Use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, not only, wonderfully, to see poor souls brought to faith, but to see a nation be challenged and changed because there is a sickness and a malaise within Russia that has been there for centuries. And only the power of the gospel can convert and transform a society. We don't realize how blessed we are, even in Britain today, with all its faults and failings, that its foundations were laid in Christian principles. That's not Russia. That's why it's such a godless, awful place. And that's why the church needs to be empowered by God to stand up and to be counted. And so we need to pray for that. And that is relevant. I felt I had to say that because that's important. Many of us have been questioning about how, what we should be praying about. We need to be clear about what we should be praying about. Particularly because Palm Sunday brings to us a picture of Jesus. And I want us this morning to unpackage for us what actually we're reading here. Because unlike in Karen, very movingly and rightly reminded me, some of the young folk, well, Palm Sunday, what's that? They, we haven't had it since 2019. And so it's, it's, it's ancient history. <laughs> and it's easy to forget about it. The rest of us, most of us sitting here, we know the story. But even knowing the story can mean that we're blind or at least not very clear as to who this Jesus is. From the very beginning, Luke has written, now you were fed up me quoting these opening verses, but it's the theme which runs through his gospel and also to a degree runs through the book of Acts that he also wrote. He wrote this gospel he said, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught, an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And Luke, the historian, the medical man who was also a historian with a mind for logic and for, and for things. Just wait a minute to get a wee handkerchief out my bag. Um, the man who was looking for all of that was keen, very keen, to ensure that the readers of his gospel, the people who would be listening to his gospel, let's just fling out all this paper till I get myself a paper handkerchief. Um, dear goodness, where are they? Who knows, who knows, who knows? Oh, well, well there's one, there's one, there's one that'll do this Jesus is the Lord of history. This Jesus is the one who strides through all the eons of human time. The Jesus who spoke and brought everything into being. The Jesus who in the book of Revelation holds a scroll of human history. This Jesus is the Lord of history. Not Caesar, not Putin, not Boris or Nicola or anyone else. This Jesus is the Lord of history. And the Jesus who enters into Jerusalem, and Paul talks in his letters of, of Jesus coming amongst us with the appearance of a man. And what he means by that, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is not that he wasn't human. We're going to see plenty of evidence over Holy Week that he was human, that he bled, that he had a heart, that he felt pain, all these other things. It wasn't that he wasn't human, but we must not be deceived as many who have been deceived, even within the church, even sadly perhaps even within this church in the past that what we're talking about here is merely a man, a human being, a good man, a prophet, a rabbi, a teacher, a philosopher, 
somebody worthy of respect. Yes, he's the son of man, but he's also the son of God. Yes, he comes riding on a donkey, but he is a warrior king who will tread the winepress of the wrath of the fury of God when he comes riding on his charge at the end of times. Read the book of Revelation. I've quoted that passage often enough. This is the Jesus who comes, who's clothed in humility, and out of obedience for the Father and love for us, journeys like this, but he does so to fulfill his messianic calling as such a king. And we really only understand that if you're willing to flick back in your Bibles to the book of the prophet Zechariah. And you think, flip, where is that? So if you go back to the end of the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi, and right after the book of Malachi, you'll come to the book of the prophet Zechariah. I'm conscious I mentioned, I think, last Sunday. But I still remember a series of Bible readings that were taken by Stephen Anderson when he was the Church of Scotland evangelist up in the northeast. We sat in his beautiful house, which is still Altner Creek, which is still an outreach centre for Scripture Union. It was built by an Austrian musician way back, more than 100 years ago. But as we sat there, he did. He led us in a study in the book of Zechariah. And I still remember it. And I never thought I would be overly referring to it. But it's important. Why? Why is it important? Well, Zechariah 9 and verse 9. So flick back if you can in your Bibles or on your phone or whatever. And let me read these verses from Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus, as he got the donkey, and as he told the men to go and get it, and tell them, interesting enough, that the Lord had need of it, and as the donkey and the colt of the donkey is brought, and as he rides into Jerusalem, he is fulfilling that prophecy. But it's very important for us to understand the context of that prophecy. Interesting, it's not in the original text, but in, certainly in my international version, that section is headed, the coming of Zion's king. So let me read on. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then it goes on to say, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Sorry about this. We blow my nose. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you, I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. And here's a prophecy, a prophecy that pertains to a particular period in human history. The reference to Greece talks about what was going to happen to Israel in what's known as the intertestamental period when Jerusalem, after a brief period of independence, and Israel, after a brief period of independence, fell under the sway once again of a Greco-Persian ruler who carried out great atrocities, including great idolatry within the temple. It does speak about events that happened in Israel's history. But it also speaks of the one who rode into Jerusalem on 
Palm Sunday. And perhaps that's why you can understand that Jesus was so annoyed and so enraged. And I got Graham to read on that passage from Luke's gospel when he went into the temple courts. And when he quotes from the prophet Isaiah that my house would be a house of prayer for all the nations. You see, the Jesus who rises into Jerusalem is that global God who has that vision of the world, of the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Earlier on in the prophecy, the prophecy in chapter 8, you can read this when you get home, the Lord promises to bless Jerusalem. And there's this picture of Jerusalem being a place where people will come. Let me read to you from Zechariah 8 and verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Do we not see that tremendous prophetic fulfillment in the Jesus who, yes, is riding on the colt of a donkey? This is the Lord of the nations. This is the one who in the book of Revelation in chapter 7 receives the nation's praise. Let me read that to you just to get that picture in our minds. Because it is easy for us to downsize Jesus and to see him merely as a man. Let me read that to you from Revelation chapter 7. These words we see that there's a great multitude after this and looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one can count. And guess where that multitude comes from? From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne, worshiping God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we can go on again and read this. What a picture. Palm branches. The sign of welcoming a king. The sign of being a people, a pilgrim people, journeying through a wilderness, looking to that land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. All of that and so much more is seen here. Jesus, who sits on the donkey, is that Messiah. And we need to remember that, my friends. I say this to my own heart as much as to anyone else. Familiarity can breed contempt. It's so easy within the life of the church. We have baby Jesus. Well, who's gonna, he's not going to cause much trouble. And yes, we have the Jesus on the cross, and he's broken, and he dies. And yes, on Easter Sunday we celebrate the resurrection, but for many of us the whole concept of that is somewhat ethereal. But Jesus, who enters Jerusalem, is this messianic king. He is 
in appearance as a man. And he is a man. But he is also the glorious and mighty God who will gather his people from the nations and will be revealed in glory when all of them with palm branches and those white robes worship the Lamb who was slain for them. That is the Jesus who rides on the donkey. And then if you want to turn to Psalm 118, Psalm 118, why are we looking at that? Well, because that's part of what's quoted when Jesus comes into, the, 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 into Jerusalem. <laughs> In fact, the, the Bible's very clear. The gospel writers are very clear. They make reference to, to that. And so I'm going to, read, I'm going to read this psalm to you, okay? Give thanks to the Lord, Psalm 118, for he is good, his love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord, and he brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surround me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarm around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand we join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And surely, again, I trust that as we've heard that psalm and read it, see all the connections, see the whole picture. This is one of the course of the great messianic psalms of the book of Psalms. Yes, it speaks about the right, it speaks about circumstances, as the prophet Zechariah did. It's rooted in events that time or surrounding. Of course there is. But it speaks about things yet to come and ways that are open. Do you remember the story in Luke's gospel? Luke, interesting enough, again, is the only one who mentions it. And remember when Jesus, they go up to Jerusalem, when Jesus is a boy, becomes a man, 
And then when they come back home and they can't find them, but there's a big crowd, there's a caravan, I don't mean the kind of four wheels, but the big crowd of people, and they think maybe Jesus is away with some of his friends and all the rest, and they find he's not, and Mary and Joseph have to go back to Jerusalem. Then, but where do they find him? They find him in the temple. And what does he call the temple? My father's house. And what's he doing in the temple? He's sitting with the scribes and the teachers of the law, and they're debating and referring to scripture, and particularly in that time when there was a growing awareness of the need of a deliverer, of a saviour. People were very unclear, as we'll see in events of Holy Week, what that would mean. But there was a longing for a deliverance saviour. Then a lot of that time would have been spent looking at messianic psalms and other prophecies in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus said, I must fulfill what the law and the prophets and the psalms have said to me, indeed at the end of Luke's gospel, he spends time opening up the scriptures and sharing from the Psalms, from the prophets and from the law, all that the scriptures had to say about him. And so when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, what would be ringing in his head? It actually wouldn't primarily be the shout of the crowds and everything else. It would be this psalm. He knew what was going to happen to him. And so those opening verses, verses 1 to 14, basically, speaking about how God is good and he will deliver me. Jesus would be reminding himself of that and how he would need to remind himself of that, my friends. As he knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane, no wonder drops of blood came from him as he cried out to his father for my friends yes as a man he hung on the cross but can I tell you other people had even worse deaths than Jesus the worst aspect of the death of Jesus was not the physical pain and suffering bad as it was but on that cross he took upon himself our sins can you imagine that friends this morning that from the deepest recesses of our hearts and souls, from a world that is broken and bleeding, he took that upon himself, the one that no one could find anything to say against. And the judgment of a holy God for those sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Man of sorrow. God is good and he will deliver me into your hands I commit my spirit Jesus cried it is finished and the curtain of the temple was torn in two you and I have access to God because of that give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love does endure forever. <coughs> and then as he comes into the second part, we could have spent the whole sermon looking at Psalm 118, but we can't do that. Time is running away from us as, as often happens. You'd be wishing I had the COVID more often. I was sitting at home. That might, you know. Right, wait, let, let me get another. Don't, whoever it is, don't come into this pool, but after I've been here... 
But as we read the second part of the psalm, you can see how that is picked up. Of course, the cry, the messianic cry from the crowd, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Verse 25, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the house of the, from the house of the Lord, we bless you. You can see that with bows in hand, joining the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. We can see all of that being fulfilled by the people. Now, I have to tell you, it wasn't that somebody went round. There wasn't some kind of organizer. You know, you get wedding organizers and, and dear knows what else organizers. <laughs> it wasn't that. It wasn't somebody went around and said, well, here's the script you know, with the kids. You know, you read this out when Jesus appeared. It wasn't like that at all. It was something that was spontaneous. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees and to others who told them to shut them up, if they don't even sing out, the stones will sing out. This was the Spirit of God. This was the yearning of God's people for deliverance. The yearning for a saviour. That young man this morning who gave his testimony on the radio, on Radio 4, spoke of how for a whole host of domestic reasons, abuse and different things, he tried this and he tried that and he tried the other. And I, he tried the broken, he wouldn't know that old gospel, he tried the broken cisterns, but ah, the waters failed. And as he fled, they mocked him and wailed. Do you remember that old hymn? Well, let me try that some week. I think that's more an organ rather than a piano. But it speaks of what so many people in our society today are living through. They yearn for a saviour. They yearn for a deliverer. And the waters that they seek after simply mock them. Scarn them. And make it even worse. I saw a program last night. Elizabeth was out babysitting for other people. That's another story. And I was flicking through the channels and ended up watching a story in Storyville. Um, and I'll tell you this one. The rise and fall of a porn star. And I hastened to add, I wound it on quite a lot during the thing. But actually, I was in tears at part of it. What people will descend to. What things will pull them down into an abyss of brokenness and sorrow. And Jesus entered into all of that as he journeyed into Jerusalem and hung on that cross for you and your salvation. He knows what it is to be broken. He knows, as the psalmist says, what it is to be pushed back and about to fall. He knows what it is to have the bees swarming round him as if they were going to consume him as quickly as burning thorns. also knows that the Lord is God and he has made, verse 27, his light shine, shine on us. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. I will give thanks for you. Answer me and you have become my Jesus, Jesus, my Jesus, my Savior. That's the Jesus who journeyed into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday. I trust, friends, and if you're at home or wherever you are listening to this, that your hearts are filled with thanksgiving. 
because of God's love and his mercy, which is you every morning. Because of God's faithfulness to the promise he gave to the prophets, to the psalmist, and to the lawgivers, that there would be one who would come who would be that mighty deliverer, that God has fulfilled that promise in the one born of Mary, the one born of God. And again, in Luke's gospel, remember how all that's unpackaged for us. Son of man, son of God. The one who comes as a man. But let's not be taken in by the picture that he's merely a man. He's not. Now, as we finish, interesting Luke in his gospel, in his account, back to that, just as we close. And I do hope we found this helpful. It certainly was laid in my heart that we should look at these passages. But notice at the end of Luke records it, the joyful crowds, verse 37, crowd of disciples begin joyful to praise God in loud voices, blesses the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Luke particularly quotes this, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, what does that trigger? What does that trigger? Does that not trigger this story of the shepherds on the hill. For there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, Luke 2, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... A great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those in whom his favor rests. And when the angel had left them, gone into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. The angels sang at the birth of Jesus, and the angel's song echoes through all time and through the very courts of heaven, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Why? Because Jesus, who is our peacemaker and prophet, Zechariah also talks about that, but that's another sermon's worth. The Jesus, who is our peacemaker, is the one who comes. Riding on a donkey. The one who will come again, riding on a white charger. And he comes on a donkey. Because he comes for me and you and our world and all its need. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's sing together a song of response. <coughs> 782. There's the mission praise if you're reading it. <coughs> 782. Worthy. Oh, worthy are you, Lord. It's an older song, but it picks up that theme of heaven and of God's people worshipping the Lamb. 782, and we'll stand to sing.
much remain standing. We stand in your presence, not because any righteousness of our own gives us the right to stand, but we're standing on the promises of Christ our King, the righteous one. I'm very conscious there's so much more we could have dwelt upon and gone into this morning, but Lord, I do pray as a preacher and as a pastor, and I know Graham and others in that ministry would be yearning the same, that you would send forth your word and the power of the Spirit, not just to folks here, but folks listening, and it would not return void, but would accomplish the purpose that you have ordained for. And what is that purpose? That men and women will cry out, praise the Lord, save us, Lord, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so by your Holy Spirit, take your word, minister deep within our souls, and draw from all of us the response of lives laid down in adoration before you, our God and our King. Amen. Janice is going to lead us in our closing hymn, Praise to the Holiest in the Height. And in the debt be praised, and all his words most wonderful, most sure in all his ways. If using the mission praise, we're going to exclude verse 4, not because there's anything wrong with it, but there's seven verses if we don't do that. So <coughs> 1 to 3 and 5 to 7 of praise to the holiest in the height. Mm -hmm. 